the markets. We just can't get enough of them. Markets are the drivers of your wealth and investment strategy. Welcome to Magic Markets with your co-hosts, the Finance Coast and Mohamed Nalla. Together, we have more than 25 years of combined experience in the markets. In addition to our weekly free show that you know and love, we have now launched Magic Markets Premium, a weekly show for our subscribers in which we give detailed analysis on global stocks. Every premium show is accompanied by a report covering the company's strategic drivers, its operating environment, its competitors, bull versus bear case, technical trading indicators, and a long-term investment thesis. At just 99 Rand per month, we are committed to making institutional-level analysis affordable for all investors and traders. Visit magic-markets.com to go premium and unlock your full potential in the markets. This podcast is brought to you by Anbro Capital Investments. Invest in the future, invest in growth. Visit investingunicorns.com to learn more. The Unicorn portfolio is managed by Anbro Capital Investments, an authorized financial services provider. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not financial or investment advice. Please speak to your personal financial advisor. Welcome to episode 125 of Magic Markets. Mo, you're here with me as you always are on this show that we so love doing every week. And we have a great guest this week who is very familiar now to our Magic Markets audience. We always have such a great time learning from him. But before I say hello to him all the way from overseas, I'll say hello to you first. Also all the way from overseas, welcome Mo. Hi Ghost, always a pleasure doing this with you. Uh, and again, very excited to reintroduce our guest. No stranger to the Magic Market Show. It's Craig and Tony from Anbro Capital. Uh, and why we really like having Craig and the Anbro team in general on the show is because they're very generous with sharing some of their ideas. And in fact, that's what we're going to do this week is we're going to talk about two stocks that are ideas that are on the watch list at Anbro. I must admit, before we even jump in, both of those are stocks that I've never heard of. And both of them come from very different, I guess, angles of the market. So I'm really excited to put that on the table for our listeners this week. Uh, and welcome, Craig, to Magic Markets. Hello, guys. Thanks for having me again. Ghost, Mo, happy to be here. And yeah, quite excited to chat about, you know, these two stocks today. So Craig, where do you want to kick us off? I'm keen to hear what you've brought to the show this week. And of course, at Anbro, it's more than just growth stocks for the unicorn portfolio. There's actually quite a bit going on in your world. So are these growth stocks? Are these compounders? What are we talking about this week? Great. Well, I mean, these two stocks I thought, you know, would be worth interest and it would be worth having a chat about. And, and they feature more in the dividend compounding space. You know, the reason they're on the watch list is because, you know, we've been waiting for certain events to, you know, to happen in the market or, you know, certain wrinkles in the economy, if you like, to iron themselves out before we, you know, put them into the portfolio per se. But just a reminder on the, you know, the Ancom portfolio, this is the dividend compounding portfolio. And, you know, one of the hurdles we look for in that portfolio is a starting yield of 4% per annum in the currency that we're investing in, whether it be dollars, euros, Swiss francs, you know, what, whatever the case may be, 4% is the yield that, that we look at. Over and above that, we want to make sure that yield is you know, it's pretty safe, well, very safe, and that, um, you know, it has the ability to grow over time as well. So we get the ability to not only have a high starting yield, but a growing yield, which we then use to reinvest back into the portfolio 
to help with compounding growth. So, you know, these two stocks feature pretty much in that space, you know, and these are the ones we'll be chatting about today. Yeah, Craig, I mean, surely it's not just the dividend that you're using as a screen. And I guess you'll unpack for us the investment thesis behind the stocks that we want to cover today. But I think the first one that you put on the table for us was a company called International Flavors and Fragrances. And that goes by the stock code IFF. Uh, I stand corrected, but I think that's where, where it comes through. Tell us about this and why this stock, which for me certainly comes a little bit from left field, why did this pop up on your radar? You know, is it just a dividend? What exactly is exciting about the stock for you and the team at Anbro? Great. Well, International Flavors and Fragrances is a very interesting business. You know, intuitively, this is a company that should be pretty much recession resistant and the business that can thrive in all types of markets and all types of economies. Now, the reason is that what International Flavors and Fragrances does is they actually provide and create artificial and natural aromas and flavors and food ingredient enzymes, um, things like probiotics, pharmaceutical binding agents, that sort of thing that goes into products that we as consumers use pretty much every single day. What we find attractive about this business is that it's what we refer to often at Anbro and, and I suppose many other people do as well is the picks and shovels type business. So it's the sorts of companies that you know provide products or services that really sort of happen behind the scenes and it's not something we naturally are aware of but without realizing it we actually do rely on the products and services that these companies provide. Now what's made this one quite interesting to me is you know it's it's fallen considerably in price over the last sort of 12 to, to 24 months. It's underperformed the market by about 50% since COVID, you know, and interestingly enough, it seems to me that, you know, this is a business that's in a sort of turnaround mode, if you like, and that we might be nearing a place where the actual performance seems to be plateauing in terms of the, you know, the slowdown we've seen in growth and earnings, and that we potentially have reached the bottom. Now, what makes it interesting, obviously, is that, you know, with the way the shares performed and how poorly it's performed, you've had an absolute derating that's taken place, both in things like its EV to EBITDA multiple versus its peer group, its PE versus its long-term average, and then also its dividend. Its dividend yield now sits at around about 4%, and that's versus a long-term average dividend yield of 2.5%. Um, the dividend itself is also safe, you know, I mean, it's grown for 20, 20 odd years or so. It's been growing at an average of about 10% per annum. So, you know, it's an interesting one now where you find a, you know, a high quality business that's, you know, supposed to be pretty safe going through a bit of a rough time and it falls into the sort of the deep value turnaround space, if you like. And, um, you know, we can get into a bit of, you know, what we think the, you know, the issues have been and how we see them coming out of these issues um, in a second or so. But, you know, ultimately, to your point, Mo, it's not just the dividend. You know, obviously we want to look at the, you know, the strength of the balance sheet, the underlying product, you know, or products that they serve, they're, you know, providing to the market and the longevity of that product, the demand for it, etc. And, um, you know, all these sort of factors need to come together before we, you know, we would consider it. But this one's starting to flash uh, on the watch list as something we need to do a bit more work on. And, and so we started doing that. Craig, we're covering 3M in Magic Markets Premium this week, which has been around for about 120 years. It's one of those brands that everyone knows that once you tell them what it is, they can kind of see that red logo immediately somewhere in their kitchen or in their garage or whatever the case may be. And the issue there has been, you know, as volumes have kind of come off after COVID and inflation has come up 
as a manufacturing business, they end up suffering quite badly on their absorption of overheads and their gross margins. And then it just really hammers them further down the income statement. I'm guessing some of that has been the issue here, as I would imagine that there's been, you know, raw material challenges, maybe some demand coming off, um, you know, in the aftermath of COVID and as things have become a little bit more difficult. Is that part of the reason why this thing has been on a bit of a, a downward spiral? Yes, I mean, that's definitely one of the reasons. I think, you know, what happened in as COVID sort of transpired, as, as you know, and it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a feature of, of in sort of industrial space and the manufacturing space in particular is, you know, people when they were stuck behind, you know, closed doors during COVID obviously went on a little bit of a shopping binge. There was um, suddenly, you know, many companies out there found themselves in a position where they didn't have sufficient stock. And then everyone scrambled to build up inventories, not just the manufacturers, but also the actual retailers, for example. And then, you know, COVID kind of ended, people went out and started redirecting their, their money and they spent to other things, you know, the sort of revenge economy, traveling, going out to shows, restaurants, that sort of thing. And suddenly these companies, um, both in the retail space and in the manufacturing space, were stuck with a lot of stock. And then you had to, you know, go through this process which we're going through now of destocking and you know the destocking is quite painful you know if you if you look at a business like this you know they obviously sell i mean just to sort of elaborate a little bit on, on some of the products they have you know one in three yogurts that are manufactured in the world have cultures inside of them by international flavors and fragrances 50 percent of cold laundry wash products 20 percent of baked goods and about 20% of global beer volumes are made using their enzymes. You know, so you can imagine this is a business that touches industries all over the show. So, I mean, if you're washing your clothes, drinking a beer, you know, eating yogurt, looking after gut health, you know, you're quite possibly supporting a business like this. And these inventory issues that, you know, that these companies are faced with now need to be worked through the system. And as you pointed out, Ghost, you know, this affects them all the way down the income statement. What's also hurt this one in particular is the fact that, you know, they bought a business from DuPont in 2021. It's part of the health and biosciences division. And this is the one that has ingredient enzymes and probiotic cultures. And, you know, to do this deal, they took on a bit of debt and it pushed debt levels up and sort of above long-term averages as well. And I think that's going into this slowdown with higher than average debt levels has also spooked the market. And, you know, the market's now looking for evidence that, you know, this is not going to be something that's going to be a permanent, um, you know, sort of feature on the balance sheet going forward, you know, higher debt and, um, and slower growth. And, you know, so you've got to really dig into the numbers here and the opportunity set to see, you know, if this is in fact now an opportunity or a value trap. Yeah, Craig, I think that's so important because, you know, as, as Ghost indicated in Magic Markets Premium this week, we're covering 3M. Uh, a couple of common themes, I guess, coming through from a company like 3M to, for example, IFF that we're discussing right now. And to your point, I mean, what, what I like in terms of what you're telling me now is that there is potentially a little bit of a defensive element simply because you know, while they're selling the shovels in the gold rush, you know, a company, their customer, for example, is not going to want to change the flavor of their yogurt, for example, overnight, if that's working with their consumers. If, for example, their, their scents are going into detergents, you know, when I blame everyone here. Everyone smells like Tide up in Canada, but that smell is distinctive and Tide's not going to want to necessarily change that. Not saying that Tide is using IFF, but as an example, they're not going to want to change that overnight. So that gives you a little bit of a defensive element 
behind the actual use case for the product that they're selling. But then going through to the balance sheet, I think that's such an important point because you know what does this company look like health-wise? You know what's the debt-to-equity ratio look like? You've indicated they've taken on a lot of debt. Uh, this is one you flag as one on your watch list. It's not necessarily in your portfolio, which means it does warrant a little bit more work. But you know if we are arguably seeing a plateauing in the interest rate cycle, how? quickly does this team at IFF need to refinance their debt? And do you see that debt, let's call it debt overhang or debt burden as something that is quite temporary and likely to be overcome should the company turn the corner here? Well, I think, you know, the short answer to that, Mo, is yes, definitely. And I think that's what makes it interesting. I mean, to give you a sense of problems they've had with regards to stock issues and, and destocking is not unique to them. If you remember sort of in the results season we went through just prior to this one, you know, companies like Nike came out and said, you know, they had too much stock and they're having to discount. Um, Target and Walmart, you know, were in the same space. You know, so what these companies did was, I mean, they, they obviously had to build up their stock in anticipation of this COVID demand that then kind of evaporated as the world opened up again. And now... You've got to move all that stock out the system before you can start, you know, selling new stock and manufacturing new stock. So that's the sort of problem you have. And I think what happens in a situation like that is it does impact your cash flows. You know, while your business is not able to sell new stock into the market because your customers are running down, you know, the probiotics that they have or the sense that they've, you know, that they've got and are needing to now put into washing powders or perfumes or whatever the case is, you're not selling as much as you normally would sell. And so that affects your performance too. Now, the important thing about a business like this is obviously the debt level. So, I mean, they've got adjusted debt to EBITDA at the moment of, you know, 4.1 times. They actually are saying, you know, they want to get to three times or lower by the end of 2024. And they've got a clear path you know, in terms of how they're going to do that. Now, the first part is obviously improving what you can improve. You know, cut costs where you can, make sure you're running the business more efficiently, um, you know, sell some non-core assets if you think that'll help, and, you know, and they've done that. Also, you know, price actions are, are quite important. Raise prices where you can. And then obviously, you know, focus on the cash that your business can generate and using that cash appropriately. Now, you know, this company generates greater than one and a half billion dollars in cash annually, free cash flow. You know, so it's not a case of cash flow that's a, that's an issue, it's using it optimally. So it's one and a half billion dollars of, of cash annually that they generate. They have debt at the moment of around about eleven billion dollars. You know, so you can see that there's a clear path to reducing that debt, you know, once we get over this hump. Of destocking, and I think that's you know what makes it interesting. Craig, it's quite tricky when a stock is on a downward slant to actually try and pick the bottom, right? I mean, it's it's almost impossible to get it perfectly right. I think if you can get it more or less right, then that helps. But do you look at technicals as well on the way down when you are trying to you know look at a stock to add to the portfolio? Do you very much look at a fundamental view and then a bit of a margin for safety? You know, what approach do you guys take in the portfolio to actually say, okay, this thing? is ready to be added and then do you go in slowly do you build the position over time do you kind of just try and grab at the bottom and put in a decent sized bid be very interesting to understand you know your approach to this thing sure so i think you know what we would do in a situation like this is, is obviously look at the you know the health of the business the health of the balance sheet you know do we see this as a business that is you know, a company that is going through a tough patch and there's gray clouds on the horizon but you can see through those gray clouds to you know, sunshine that'll ultimately come through. 
And, you know, in a situation like this one, I mean, you have, you know, fundamentally a business which is in the right um, space from a very defensive perspective. You know, the cash flows are strong. Its margins, you know, are around about 16%. Um, and then you have, as I said, this massive devaluation that's taken place. And one of the things you look at is, you know, the value of this company relative to its peer group. Now, importantly, you know, when one looks at some of the peers that this company, you know, competes against, and you look at the results they've brought out, they're also suffering from similar situation. You know, I mean, they've obviously come out as well and said, you know, we've got excess stock in our inventory that we're trying to move out of. You know, we have our clients that have obviously bought a lot of stock. They're trying to get rid of, you know, so it's not just IFF that's suffering with this problem. It's also, you know, the competitors in the space. So that helps to know that it's, you know, not a unique situation and that it's a sort of industry-specific one. And then you compare the valuations of those peers to, to something like IFF, and you'll find there's a stark disconnect that's taken place. Um, the trailing 12-month PE average of the peer group is around about 33 times. You know, for international flavors and fragrances, it's about 17. You know, if you look at the EV to EBITDA multiple of, you know, the peer group, it's about 18 times. For international flavors and fragrances, it's about 14 and a half. At the same time, you know, they're one of the big players in the space. You know, with a market cap of 21-odd billion dollars, they are amongst the sort of two or three bigger ones in the industry. So this is not an outlier company where it's a micro cap, you know, that's trading at a discount. You know, it's a big player in the space and it's trading at a meaningful discount to its peer group. To answer your question, Ghost, I mean, you know, we don't really follow technicals, but you know, what we would do in a situation like this is say, well, there's clearly a very big disconnect here between the peer group multiples and this business. You know, what we'd want to see is probably the next quarter or two's worth of results, you know, to just show us that what they've said they can do, they are doing. Now, this business came out with, you know, quarterly results about a week or so ago, and the results have shown sequential improvement on a quarter-on-quarter -quarter basis. So to give you a sense, I mean, you had the, you know, the fourth quarter numbers that came out, they delivered, um, and that was sort of to the end of December last year, that number you know, delivered operating EBITDA of about $441 million. This quarter, it's $503 million. And they've guided to next quarter of somewhere between $65 million or so at the midpoint of guidance. So, you know, you sequentially are seeing quarter on quarter an improvement in, in EBITDA. Sales are reasonably flat, um, slightly higher quarter on quarter, which is also showing us we have some operating leverage which is taking place there. And margins are also about a percent higher this quarter than they were last quarter. So the first thing we want to look at is that, you know, this in fact is taking place, that you are seeing the sequential improvement and the thesis that we're that we're looking at is playing out. Once we're comfortable that that is the case, you know, you probably then want to start with a, a starter position, you know, something enough to, you know, to keep you interested and to make sure that you, you have a sort of a, a toe in the water, so to speak, but will allow you to leg into the position at the same time if the market continues to frown on it. Now, to give you a sense of this company's performance over the last four months since the year started, you know, you had the fourth quarter results that came out that were disappointing. The share price basically fell 20% in a day and then faded another 10% after that. They then came out in March and, and sort of reiterated the guidance. The share price then recovered substantially after that. 
And then the results came out, you know, last week. And, you know, they, they beat expectations, but the guidance for quarter three, although showing sequential improvement, was below consensus, and the share fell 13% again. You know, so there's a lot of volatility in the stock as, you know, I think bulls and bears are having a, a real tug of war here. So, yes, I mean, you know, once we're comfortable that the thesis is playing out, then we literally try to leg into the position over time, you know, until we build a full position. Because, you know, with companies like this, there's clearly, you know, a lot of uncertainty and, and you don't want to go in sort of all at once. Greg, I think that's very important perspective because, again, it's something that's on your watch list. But it's also, you know, tied to the ethos that you and the team at Anbro have, which is a very long-term thesis. So I think it's quite prudent to say, look, this is the long-term multi-year thesis. Do we actually see delivery on this thesis on kind of a sequential quarter-on-quarter basis? And I mean, that extent of volatility that you've outlined there is, is quite staggering, considering the fact that this company is one of scale, you know, in terms of its market capitalization in the interest of time, because I want to get to the second stock that we're discussing. I'm going to almost pivot here because the next stock that you've actually raised or you put on the table for us to discuss today is Runway Growth Finance. And the reason I want to go there is because this is actually a very different flavor to the international fragrances business we just discussed now in that it's substantially smaller. I'm looking at this and it says it's got a market capitalization of around 430 odd million dollars. That's very different. What exactly is Runway Growth Finance's business? Why is this a stock that has popped up on the Anbro watch list, on the Anbro radar? Well, that's a great question, Mo. And this is one that is, is also intriguing me substantially at the moment. Now, what Runway Growth Finance is, is it's what's called a business development corporation or a business development company. Now, this is not an uncommon type of business in the States. You know, there, there are many of them out there, some private, many listed. And, you know, what these companies do is they essentially provide growth capital to other companies. And that's really the, the core focus and the core purpose of these businesses. Now, they were created by the U.S. Congress in 1980. And the aim there was really just to help spur job growth and job creation by creating a source of capital or funding for new companies, small companies, distressed companies, you know, whatever it is that you, you know, that you're looking for. But there are certain sort of parameters that, that have to sort of fall into place before this company can, can operate. I think first of all, you know, they are mandated to only provide capital to businesses that have a valuation or, or sales rather of around $250 million or less. You know, so by nature, they are operating really in the sort of smaller end of, of what you would call, you know, the business market in the States. The other thing they have to do is that, you know, 70% of their capital, you know, needs to be in companies like that. So the vast majority of the capital that they've raised needs to go into these businesses, you know, that have market values of less than $250 million. They also at the same time have to provide managerial assistance to these companies. So, you know, it's very much if you want to look at it as, say, a private equity Vencap type model, but a little bit different in that normally that space is only, you know, the, you know, left to the, you know, the, the really ultra net worth family office or, or ultra net worth individual or, you know, very big sort of venture cap funds that have raised an enormous amount of, of capital from sovereign wealth funds or the like. You know, BDCs take it down to a slightly lower level and make those sort of assets available to investors like you and I, 
you know and what makes it interesting then is you know it adds a nice opportunity to potentially diversify your portfolio as an investor because over and above all of this they are also required to pay 90% of their profits out as dividends so ultimately what happens then is you have a massive dividend yield you know on businesses like this and um Obviously, you know, you know, with companies like this, there are certain risks in that that you know one has to be in tune with. So it's not just free money, but you know, every now and again, you'll you know you'll come across one that looks intriguing and and that has what you know what I think is the right recipe, you know, for success. And I think this may be one of them. So Craig, it's always really interesting learning about these businesses that are very much not on the radar for South African investors, and that is, I guess, why you would use an asset manager with a global mandate to go and dig out these interesting companies that you know most South Africans just do not have the time to go and even look for, let alone you know ever heard of. But in terms of the risks in this thing, the macroeconomics around it, you know, the market's been full of talk around smaller financial institutions in the U.S. coming under a fair amount of pressure. Now, how do you think about that in the context of this business? Okay, well, the, the important thing here, Ghost, again, is there are a couple of very important check boxes, if you like, that have to be ticked off before you look at a business like this. Now, first and foremost, is one's got to look at the, the management team here, I think. You know, who is the jockey behind a business like this? Because you can imagine if your sole purpose is to provide, you know, VenCap or growth funding, you know, to a small business you have to be very, very clued up in terms of what's happening in the economy. And, you know, you have to have a very good understanding of sort of the macro outlook, you know, in the economy, not just broadly, but also in the industry that you're providing the funding to. At the same time, you also have to know a thing or two about running a business, right? Because you need to now help these guys with the business. So you're giving them your capital or your shareholder capital, and they are paying you, you know, a fee for that, obviously, and then you need to help them succeed, you know, and that's how sort of everyone wins in this, in this occasion. Now, for this one in particular, you know, the CEO and the CIO of this business, it's the same guy, he's a person by the name of David Spring, and, you know, he is the, also the founder of this company, and he's a 25-year veteran in the venture capital space, you know, he has about 50 tech companies, you know, behind his name that he's sort of helped fund and grow. He's helped 18 companies RPO. He's sold 14 businesses into the trade in his space. And, um, you know, this is a guy that, you know, is a, is a bit of a stalwart in the space. You don't have to ask me. I mean, you can look up a thing called the Forbes Midas list. It's um, not something people are necessarily aware of, but this is a list of the best venture capital investors that get um, rated on an annual basis. He's made this list four times in his career. And, um, you know, you look at this sort of jockey and you think, well, you know, I'd be willing to assume he knows what he's talking about. You know, this business has been created. It's it's relatively new. I mean, it was started in 2016, only listed in 2021. So the business itself is relatively new, but this is a guy that has almost three decades worth of experience in the industry and i would think you know with someone that's been around that long his process has obviously evolved over time it's been tweaked over time and this sort of latest iteration if you like of of what it is he's trying to do is probably the culmination of all that effort so you have now i I would assume you know this recipe that's taken 30 years odd you know to to perfect and now you know here we have it and i think it's quite it's quite interesting times obviously you know one of the things that this company does is they do provide growth capital into the tech space um it's not 
the whole of their portfolio, but it is a pretty significant piece of their portfolio. And obviously with all that's happened with Silicon Valley Bank and, and all the rest of it, you know, one would be interested to see how this is affecting their business and the, ultimately their clients. Now about 58% of their loan book is in tech, you know, so it's pretty big, but there's also things like life sciences in there, consumer services and products, etc. It's a pretty diverse portfolio. Um, I think what they do to help mitigate the risk is is several things. First of all, you know the businesses that they give cash to have to be late stage companies. So these aren't startups. These aren't companies that are starting with an idea and you know and are out on a whim and, and trying to change the world. These are businesses that have been around for a while. They mature. You know they either need cash to fund their next leg of growth. Perhaps they're a great business um, that's going through a bit of a cash flow crunch and, the, and so needs an injection of capital to help see them, you know, through a certain phase or a restructuring process or whatever the case is. But ultimately, these are proper established businesses. They just happen to be smaller than average. On top of that, they then take first lien debt. You know, so this is the sort of debt that is right at the top of the balance sheet, right at the top of the capital stack, which means that if anything happens to this business, they are first in line, you know, for, for cash when it comes to getting their, their loans repaid. And then over and above that, these companies that they provide capital to have to have pretty much zero leverage or debt to start with before they even provide them with the capital. You know, so the overall LTV, you know, that these businesses have or loan to value needs to be significantly low even after they've taken, you know, the, the debt from or the capital injection from someone like Runway Growth Finance for them to even qualify. You know, so there are a couple of things that are done to mitigate the risk at the end of the day. Yeah, Craig, I, I think that's really interesting. I mean, I'm personally at, at kind of, a, if you just had a look at this cold, I would be a little terrified just because of what's happened with Silicon Valley Bank and that concentration in sectors like tech. But I think the important point you mentioned actually came before that concentration point. And that is the fact that on a stock like this, you're backing the jockey, you're backing the management team, you're backing someone with a track record, a very similar, I guess, to what you would do when you were looking at, uh, you know, selecting a, a strong management team that's still run by the founder, a stock that may find its way into your unicorn portfolio. But unfortunately, we don't really have that much time to unpack this particular one in a lot more detail. I know you've mentioned that both of these are on your watch list. It's not necessarily in your portfolio. I do want to stress that obviously this doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to go out and buy these stocks today. It's just interesting stocks that you want to be having a look at in terms of a little bit more due diligence. Maybe with, for example, Runway, you want to actually go and have a look at what is the concentration risk on their book look like uh, across the other sectors that they're involved in. I'm quite hesitant in terms of, you know, some of this stuff that just hits the headlines. But, but I do want to thank you in terms of putting both of these very interesting stocks on the radar for us, because as Ghost has mentioned, these are typically not stocks or companies that would fall onto our listeners' radars, you know, sitting down in South Africa. But unfortunately, that's where we're going to have to leave the discussion this week. Before we do that, where can our listeners find the Anbro team? I know we can point them towards your website, which is www.anbro.co. Uh, is that the best place for someone to reach out to you guys? Should they have any further questions? Yes, certainly. I think, you know, go to the website, have a look there. You know, there's links on the website just of, um, you know, the team as a whole. And then there's also, you know, buttons one can push to get you to the, you know, the different portfolio websites, whether it be the AnComp portfolio, which is obviously this one we've been talking about today and the, and the high yield, or the Unicorn portfolio, which is more growth orientated. And then you'll you know, be able to 
you know, dig in a bit more and, and see a bit more about those, you know, underlying investment opportunities too. Thanks, Craig. I think that's fantastic. And again, thank you so much to you and the Enbro team for always sharing your time with us, for being generous with putting some of these ideas on the radar for us and for our listeners here at Magic Markets. Uh, and to our listeners, we hope you've enjoyed this particular show. Hit us up on social media. It's at Magic Markets Pod, one word. Until next week, same time, same place. Thanks and cheers. Ciao. This podcast is brought to you by Anbro Capital Investments. Invest in the future, invest in growth. Visit investingunicorns.com to learn more. The unicorn portfolio is managed by Anbro Capital Investments, an authorized financial services provider. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not financial or investment advice. Please speak to your personal financial advisor 